Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, The Resurrection, with a message entitled Christ and Adam. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 19 to 22, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I must confess that I have never liked sentimentality. I also don't like nostalgia because the good old days were never as good as we remember them. And the over-reliance on nostalgic feelings, I mean, feelings of tenderness for the days gone by, accompanied by sadness that have gone by, well, it's just plain silly. Sentimentality is often attached to misremembered past events. And in my view, it's little more than a descent into deceitful, narcissistic emotions laced with self-pity. Now you know what my wife has to live with. I don't like romantic comedies on television. I don't like tearjerker stories. In my view, the world is already filled with enough evil and sadness that I hardly need some fiction to add to my tears. I never read through the books giving stories of motivational living because partially, I don't know if the stories happened exactly as they were reported, and I'm not sure the inspirational stories really do inspire real life. And speaking of real life, You know, in real life, stories don't resolve themselves the way they do in the movies, and all of this has a little to do with disappointment with life, and then by projection, disappointment with God. Boy, I know what you're thinking. Let's not invite Mr. Scrooge to our next Christmas party. Well, fair enough. I probably should lighten up a bit and give everyone a break, but I'll take that to heart. But the reason I'm talking this way is that the bodily resurrection from the dead had better be more than a vain hope or a kind of a sentimental longing that death really doesn't have the last word. Because when Christians talk about the resurrection, this idea doesn't arise out of the belief that in the end everything just seems to work out. See, I'm reminded that Jesus ended his earthly life on a cross with his enemies surrounding him, mocking him, and spitting on him with glee. And a great many of his followers end that way as well. Athanasius, the great defender of the Trinity in the 4th century, was banished from the empire and kicked out of his church. John Chrysostom, the great preacher of the 3rd and 4th century, was walked into exile with such haste that they literally walked him to death by the order of the Empress Eudoxia. John Huss, the forerunner of the Reformation, in 1415 was tricked into coming to Constance, Germany, where he was promised safety and promised an open discussion of what the Bible taught, and instead he was promptly arrested and then they burned him at the stake. The reformers of the 16th century were mistreated. Many of the Anabaptists were cruelly murdered. John Wycliffe, the great English reformer and Bible translator, had his body exhumed after death so that his enemies might burn it. When things got a little more genteel in the 19th century, it was the great English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was so criticized that after his death, his widow told of the great stress on his emotional health. It seems likely that that contributed to his early death. The great American preacher Jonathan Edwards, after being a key leader in the First Great Awakening, was kicked out of his local church. I mean, I could go on and on with these stories. In real life, the people of God are often hounded and in a great many cases have died in very difficult circumstances. Not the kind of popular inspirational stories that the motivational speakers like to use. So it seems to me that if we are to believe the most optimistic and most confident story of all time, 
that our death does not have the last word, then, then it must come to us with a hard edge of realism and not sloppy sentimentality, lest we have hoped and believed in vain. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians 15. The issue of this chapter of Scripture is that there were some in the city of Corinth, some believers there, who were denying the resurrection, that is, not the resurrection of Jesus, but rather that believers would be raised bodily from the dead. In response, Paul appeals to Christ's resurrection, a matter which was not in dispute. And so Paul outlines seven important matters that would be true if there were no resurrection from the dead. First, Christ's body would then still be in the tomb. Second, the gospel would be worthless. Third, the apostles would have been psychopathic liars. Fourth, there would be no connection between Christ and his followers. And fifth, Christ's death on the cross for our sins would have been meaningless and untrue. And sixth, those who have died in Christ would then face the judgment without hope and they would perish. Now I have left the last point to be discussed today. Paul says that if there is no resurrection, then we, that is, we believers, should be pitied above all other people. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So let's think about that for a moment. And it is here that I want to take a cheap pot shot at all that sentimental nonsense that sometimes gets said about the Christian faith. See, every once in a while, I'll hear someone say, you know, even if the Christian faith weren't true, it would still be worth it because, you know, of all the benefits that it has to give. And they mean by that the rich fellowship that we enjoy and the benefits that it brings to our family life and the moral centeredness that it brings to our lives and the joy. Well, we can list all the benefits. And indeed, for some, the benefit is even there at death because we go to our experience of death with a sense of anticipation that we're going to heaven, whereas people who have no hope in eternity tend to approach death with a great deal of apprehension. The line goes something like this. You know, even if the Christian faith isn't true, still, it gives great assurance in life and in death. While not wanting to discount any of the practical benefits of the Christian faith, I mean, these kinds of comments often miss something that's essential. They miss the teaching of Jesus. Let me read from Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, Jesus is telling us to throw our lives away on the hope that in so doing, we will find our lives in eternity. He's calling us to deny ourselves of things that the world enjoys with one promise, to give up what this world has and not to think of it as a great sacrifice for we're gaining eternity. Now then, if he's wrong, or in our terms, if he was not raised from the dead, then all we've done is to throw our lives away. We are to be pitied. You know, but practically, what does that mean? Well, for Paul, it completely changed his life. Before he surrendered to Christ, he was a respected man. He had become a member of the Sanhedrin. He was advancing in Judaism. He was a sought-after rabbi. He was well-spoken of by everyone. And then Christ came into his life. And what then? Well, let's describe that in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four to 28. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I hope you see the picture. See, Paul would never say, even if Christianity wasn't true, it would still be worth living. No, no. Consider those people who come to faith in countries where faith in Christ cost them their family. You know, I've often spoken of people from Muslim countries where after their conversion to Christ, their mother, their father, and their siblings have all disowned them. They were left alone without any inheritance. But that's not nearly as extreme as those who were imprisoned for their faith. And what of the witness of the famous missionary Jim Elliot? On the night before he was martyred, he wrote in his diary, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And with those words, he walked confidently to his death. Listen, if you follow Christ because of the perceived benefit to you now, that is, you know, harmony with your family and excellent ethics, resulting in a healthy and a robust business. I mean, on and on we could go and give examples. Then I would say to that, I have two responses. And here's the first. You know, if that's all taken away, you know, I suspect that you're going to desert Christ. You know, and second, what does all that have to do with the cost of discipleship that Jesus demands of you? And so is there a cost to your faith? And perhaps it costs you 10% of your gross income, for instance. Does it cost you more? You know, how about a different view of retirement, which might mean, you know, service and sacrifice? Does it cost you a potential lost job as you fail to bend your ethics to what might be expected? Does it cost you learning to have courage to share the gospel of Jesus with others who are around you? See, there's a point to what I'm saying. Your faith is supposed to be a holy gamble that if this thing, the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus is untrue, you are to be pitied above all other people. The Partner to Tell monthly partner program continues to hit new heights of involvement from friends from coast to coast. There is not a single province who isn't represented by a committed partner in ministry. The regular gifts of monthly partners have become a stabilizing and foundational force for the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. The impact extends to every aspect of ministry, breaking down barriers, financial or otherwise, for making Bible teaching resources available to anyone seeking to know the truth of the gospel and desire desiring to grow deeper in their relationship to the Lord. So if you're a monthly partner and you wonder what impact you're making, let me assure you that you're an integral part of all that is done to lead people closer in their walk with Jesus every day. To find out more about becoming a partner to tell monthly partner and join this incredible group of ministry friends, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or sign up online at backtothebible.ca. I'm frequently overwhelmed at the cost that some pay for their confidence in the resurrection of Christ. Yes, we all know of missionaries who have, for the, for the sake of the gospel, sacrificed a good salary at home. But I constantly run into people who sacrifice all for the gospel. 
I know of one wealthy man who refused a big house or the best of cars so that he might give away the majority of his salary so that the gospel might increase. I know one woman who used to take December away in the sunny climate of Mexico. And when she died, I discovered that which she had never shared with anyone else. All December, she had worked in a Mexican garbage dump, ministering to the poor and sharing all that she had. That is how she spent her holidays. She never told us she was counting on the resurrection. You know, she could have gone to a resort, but she was at a garbage dump with a garbage people. You know, was she wise in doing this? You know, if Christ was not raised from the dead, she was a fool, but she was no fool at all. The point is, your faith is supposed to be a holy gamble, that you're gambling everything you have and throwing it all on the table, saying, if this stuff isn't true, it's the biggest of all losses. It's like showing up at a roulette wheel and taking everything you have, your, your family, your house, your income, your future, and placing it all down and saying, spin the wheel and let it ride. And if you don't have that experience, well, then maybe you still don't get it. You know, when someone says Christianity is not just about what happens after you die, I respond, you know, if you take that out, you've got nothing. It's what happens after you die that makes all of life meaningful here. Wow, is this the Christian life? Just a wild gamble at the roulette wheel? No, no, it is not. Why? Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You know, would you notice that this small paragraph in the Bible begins with, with such an important word? The word is the word but. It's what grammarians call an adversative. You know, throughout the Bible, there are some amazing adversatives. So, for instance, in Ephesians 2 verse 4, after describing God's anger against the whole world for their sins, verse 4 says, but God being rich in mercy, but. You know, that little word often changes everything. And here in 1 Corinthians, after Paul has described seven things that would be true if there were no resurrection from the dead, there comes this wonderful adversative, but. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And the phrase, in fact, is more commonly translated as, as now. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. But now with the resurrection of Christ, an assurance has been given that was never there before. Not only is the resurrection of Jesus historically verifiable, the advent of this thing has moved all believers from a place of insecurity to a place of eternal security. So why is the resurrection of the body so important? Well, first, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 19, Paul has answered that question negatively. What if it were true, he asked, that there were no physical bodily resurrection? What if the life to come were only spiritual and not physical? What then? Then secondly, in verses 20 to 22, he answers the question positively. Since there really is a resurrection of the body, what then? Or to put it the way that Paul does, since we can say with confidence that Christ rose bodily from the dead, then two things follow of necessity. The first, Christ's bodily resurrection from the grave is the pattern for our resurrection as well. The word that Paul uses has been very carefully chosen by the apostle. It's the word first fruit. Now, the word first fruit is a wonderful word. It comes from the Old Testament law. Indeed, the law has a number of distinct references to this very word. 
Exodus 23, verse 19, speaking of the harvest of crops, commands, and I quote, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord. Now, that passage seems to refer simply to the tithe. You take the best of your crops and you present it as an offering. But there is more, for as we read through the law, we see that concept being developed further. I'm reading now from Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 and 10. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priests, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. So imagine the scenario. Your crops are slowly turning color. They're ripening. Time the harvest is near. Before you harvest, you go out into the field and you cut down one bundle. That bundle functions as a representative for all the grain that's left standing in the field. And then you bring that bundle to the tabernacle and present it to the priest. And he takes that sheaf, and as an act of thankfulness that God is again being good in providing the harvest, he takes that sheaf and waves it before God, saying, This sheaf came from you, and it represents all that's in the field that you have given that will soon come in. Thank you, God, for this. And that, says Paul, is what Christ is. He is the first fruit. He represents the harvest of resurrections that are waiting in the field for the time of the harvest will soon come. But he's taken before God. He's resurrected first. He is waved before God for God himself, as it were, has waved the resurrected Jesus before his followers and said, this is the first. This is the guarantee that there are many more to come. That's why the resurrection of Christ is a pattern for us. All that has happened to Christ is going to happen to us. Just like Jesus, our tombs will also one day stand empty. And the bodies that we lay down in dishonor will be raised up in honor. And we will live like him. He's our pattern. He's the first fruit. Now to verses 21 and 22. You know, in that section, Paul now speaks of a man, and he means Adam. By a man, he says, has come death. And then he contrasts that man with the second man, another man. By a man has come the resurrection from the dead. You know, in this final section, Paul reminds us how we got to where we are. Death was given to us because of Adam's sin. I know, there are people who have difficulty with this. They wonder why Adam's sin is imputed or reckoned or added to their account. But in truth, Adam is the federal head of the entire human race, and with his sin has come death to the entire human race. Death is the defining marker of our lives. You know, if you belong to Adam's family, and you do, you bear the characteristics of Adam's family. You do. The defining characteristic of that family is death. And that explains verse 22. In Adam, for you are in Adam, all die. But in Christ, ah, here's the change. For those who are in Christ, they also have a new federal head of a new race. Just like Adam's family, who all share in his defining characteristic, so also Christ's family has the characteristic of Christ. And his defining characteristic is that he has conquered death, that he is the ever-living one. His raised body is now an indestructible body, and his family will bear the likeness of him. In Christ, says verse 22, that is, all who are in Christ shall be made alive. And that in context means, in Christ, your body, when it's broken down and old and diseased and flabby and wrinkled and simply worn out. And by the way, 
You know, I heard one old person say to me, when I got old, everything hurt and whatever didn't hurt didn't work. Well, soon enough, nothing will work yet. Your body will soon die. Yes, but in Christ, this old body shall be made alive. The grave will never hold you because you bear the defining characteristic of the head of your new family. You know, I know, I know. There's still so many questions that we need to answer. You know, I live in British Columbia's lower mainland, which is a rainforest. It rains constantly, and if a body is buried in this ground, it doesn't take long until it's dissolved entirely. You know, it's one thing for Christ to be raised after three days, but can it really be true of us? Well, wait for it. It's still coming in this passage, and we're going to deal with this as we continue our way all the way through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But this is the point. Please know this. Christ is not only the pattern for our resurrection. His resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. His resurrection is like a legal document that's pressed into our hand that guarantees our bodily resurrection. So then what does all that mean? You know, as we work through this passage, we're going to learn that we need fear nothing. You know, death does not mean the extinction of our hope. It doesn't mean that I will come back in a different life form. It doesn't mean that I'll eternally exist in some spiritual form. No, no. In Christ, death cannot rob me of one thing, for it could not do it to Christ, and it cannot do it to those who are in Christ. We who are in Christ have the defining mark of Christ's family. Just as Adam's children are marked by death, so Christ's children are marked by resurrection. To God be the glory. John, thank you so much for this message. This is a great reminder that, you know, our hope needs to be found in eternity, in the resurrection uh, that we share with Christ. But can you help us just for a minute? What is a quick definition or, or, or something we might understand simply about what the resurrection of the, of the physical body is all about? Yeah, I mean, again, I want to say that the resurrection of Christ's physical body is our pattern. And so as Christ was raised bodily, it is so fascinating to me that, you know, sometimes when the disciples looked at Christ, uh, they would recognize him. And sometimes, you know, they're struggling, is that really him? And I think it's because all the marks of pain and suffering and the things that attend to death were no longer a part of him. So, yes, he looked like himself, and yet he looked substantially different. So, uh, I, sometimes I use even the example of our body 2.0, you know, um, that is, that all of the things that now attend our bodies that are less than perfect are, in the end, uh, cleaned up. They are healed. They are made well. We are as we were always intended to be. For the first time ever, uh, God has made us so that we would never die. Well, that's a message. It's a great hope for all people. Thanks so much for joining us today. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Every year we have the privilege of putting together a five-message series of Dr. Neufeld's most impactful messages of the year. So available to anyone who would ask as our free gift, we want to make available for this month only the Highlight Reel 2016. Five wonderful, inspiring, and biblical messages from Dr. Neufeld's Journey to the Cross, Remembering the Reformation, and Finding Forgiveness, and other series as well. All of these messages represent the excellence in Bible teaching that you can expect from Back to the Bible Canada. 
So please take the opportunity to ask for your free Highlight Reel 2016 CD series today as our gift. To request your copy, find out more about Back to the Bible Canada, or offer a much-appreciated ministry donation, call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.